Sticking to the can't be done Nothing you can sing that can't be sung Nothing you can say but you can learn how to play the game It's easy Nothing you can make that can't be made No one you can say that can't be saved Nothing you can do but you can learn how to be you in time take you back <laughs> some of you are old enough to remember when that song came out and uh, I told the first service some of them were uh, young enough to remember when that song came out but um, is that all we need love just is that what it's all about love you know the Bible says God is love but it does not say love is God. And so we need a little more than love. We need God in our lives. But love goes along with knowing God. And we're going to learn about that today. We have a picture here of, the, uh, of a sign downtown, a mural. Uh, it's on the side of the Quaker Stake and, Stake and Lou building, uh, six, 629 State Street. And if you sit at the burger bar and look out the window, you'll be looking right at that sign almost. So it's really neat for our area. It uses instruments to uh, spell out the word love. And I hope you can see that, L-O-V-E. And it, it's a pretty cool sign. And, of course, we're the birthplace of country music, so the instruments there, it all sort of ties in with, especially on the Virginia side, with their theme, Virginia is for lovers. and But love is something that's hard to express sometimes. And there's often times when we don't do a good job expressing our love. I read this week an article that talked about the worst Mother's Day gifts and cards ever. Uh, some child somewhere got their mother deodorant for Mother's Day. Or how about this one, a fire extinguisher, cleaning supplies, a stick of French bread, salad dressing, a calculator, popcorn, ants for an ant farm, hair dye, a screwdriver, toilet roll, car parts. I can just see my mom now. If I said, Mom, I got you a screwdriver for Mother's Day, she'd be thrilled to death. She'd probably throw it at me. But um, And then there's, there's part of this is also the things that they wrote in cards or the cards were about. Mom, thanks for always checking up on me. Had a picture of a cell phone with 24 unanswered calls from Mom. Or, well, I guess this Mother's Day card is late. Looks like someone wasn't raised properly. That's a real compliment for Mom, and. I like this one. I'm awesome. You're welcome to the luckiest mom ever. <laughs> or mom, I love you loads. And there's a picture of a laundry basket full of, 
full of laundry. Speaking of loads, it said, can you do my laundry? So, you know, those, somehow those gifts and those messages just don't convey a real, sincere, true love. And so we have a hard time sometimes um, expressing our love. Ken Davis was a, is a Christian author, preacher, um, and he tells about a time in his marriage when he was not a very good husband. First 15 years of his marriage, he said, I was terrible. He said, my wife, she worked hard, worked a full-time job. She took care of the kids. She took care of the house. She was my personal secretary for my ministry, and she did everything. And I went off to work every day and left it all to her. And he said, one day she was out shopping. The kids were gone. I was home all alone, and I was bored to death. And I looked over, and I saw the vacuum cleaner. And he said, I started vacuuming, and I realized with the carpet that we had, you could stripe that carpet. You drag it one way, and then you turn around and go back the other way, and it would make a different pattern. And he said, so I striped the whole living room with the vacuum cleaner. And then he said, I discovered you could go the other direction, and you could make it checkerboard. So I checkerboarded the whole living room. And then I was still bored, so I started dusting, and I cleaned up the house, wiped everything off, straightened up all the junk that was laying around, the house was beautiful, he said. And when my wife came home, I heard her knock the front door in, stumble in with bags in each arm, and I was sitting in my recliner. Didn't even think to get up and help her. Heard her kick the door shut, and then she turned around and dropped all the groceries, and she yelled, Who did this? This is amazing. She walked into the living room, and he said, Honey, I did it. He said, she jumped on me in the recliner and started kissing me and hugging me. And make a long story short, they broke the recliner. <laughs> and he said, I learned that day that love is more than just words. It's action. And so we, we need to learn about how to express our love. You know, that's one of the definitions of worship is expressing love to God. And love is important. It's talked about in the Bible over and over again. We want to think today about biblical love. We are continuing our series. In fact, we're going to finish it up today, the Why series. And we've talked about suffering and why am I here, what is my purpose, uh, why should I have a, a godly worldview versus a worldly worldview? Why should I follow Jesus? But today we're going to ask the question, why does the Bible put so much emphasis on love? You know the word love is used 278 times in the New Testament. 278 times, that's a lot. And we're going to zero in on that word love and what it means. Now in a couple of weeks we're going to talk about how love plays out practically in our lives. We'll be doing a, uh, we're starting next week our vision series. We're going to talk about our new vision and mission and our core values for our church that we've established. Uh, and in that second sermon on our mission, I'm going to talk about uh, how love prays out practically in our lives. But I want you to understand that love is important in the Bible. In the book of, uh, of 1 Corinthians, 
chapter 12, Paul writes at the end of that chapter, he's been talking about working in the church and serving and being part of the church. And in the end of that chapter, he says, now I will show you the most excellent way. And then he goes into chapter 13, which is the love chapter. And in that love chapter, he mentions right at the very beginning of that, he says, if I speak eloquently, if I preach with great knowledge, if I have faith to move a mountain, if I give all I have to the poor, if I sacrifice my body in service, but I don't have love, it's all for nothing. It doesn't count. He said it's got to be motivated by love. So I'd like for you to turn today to 2 John chapter 1, and we're going to look at this little short letter about uh, love. Now, last week we were in John, the Gospel of John, and we talked about following Jesus, but today we're going to look at part of what following Jesus means for our lives. You know, John wrote five books in the Bible. He wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then he wrote the book of Revelation. This little short letter, or it's, uh, in the Greek it's called Epistle, it's 2nd John. It's just a half a page in my Bible, but it's so significant and so packed with good information about love. Of course, John was an apostle. He was a close associate of Jesus. He was a leader and a founder in the early church. And perhaps he's writing this letter to one church or maybe several churches. You know, when John was uh, uh, late in his ministry, he settled in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And there were seven churches in that area around Ephesus that he ministered to. He was sort of like a leader of those seven churches and helped them really get well established. In fact, there were seven churches that he wrote letters to in the book of Revelation at the beginning, chapters 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation. And probably he's writing to one of these. Even though he doesn't call it a church here, he calls it the lady chosen by God. You know, the church is the bride of Christ. And so that's probably his code word for the church. And he's writing to help them get straight on some ideas that maybe they've drifted away from in, in uh, what Jesus had taught. And there's some false teachers coming into the church trying to lead the church astray. And so John writes this letter to these churches. So let's read the first part of this letter. 2 John, verse 1. The elder, that's what he's calling himself. To the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth. And I not and not I only, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, that is, the, the people of the church, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. So let's think about today what John is trying to convey. I don't know if you noticed or not, but the word love in those first six verses is used five times. 
It is prominent in that little short passage. It is, in fact, the main point of this passage. You go back to verse 5, and he says, I'm writing to you a new command, uh, not a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. And what he's talking about, the night that Jesus, before Jesus died, it's recorded in John chapter 13, he washed the disciples' feet, and later on he gave a teaching, and he said, as I have a, a new command I give you, as I have loved you, so must you love one another. Now, the command to love was not a new command. It comes all the way from the Old Testament. But as I have loved you, as Jesus had loved, he was commanding them to love the way he loves. And by way of his, John's writing, we are commanded to follow Jesus and love that way. So let's look. first thing I want you to see is Jesus says that love is most important attitude, attribute for God's people. You know, three times in the New Testament, Jesus was confronted and asked questions. They were trying to trap him in the teachings of the Jewish people. And in Matthew chapter 22, uh, Mark chapter 12, and Luke chapter 10, Jesus was asked questions. Once by a Pharisee, once by a teacher of the law, once by an expert in the law, and the same question. And that was, what is the greatest commandment that God has given? And Jesus gave a response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus is telling the people the most important command of God is to love. Now, he goes on to say in Matthew chapter 22, all the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, hang on these two commands. That we love God and that we love people. That's how important this idea of love is. And it makes for a great saying. You know, we say it, church people say it all the time. Yeah, we love God and we love people. I don't know how many churches have that on their bulletins and on their wall and, and, uh, and wherever. And they say, this is... This is who we are and what we do. It makes for a great saying, but carrying it out practically is a different story. But before we can even carry it out practically, we have to understand it. So we're going to focus on that today. In a couple of weeks, we'll focus on how we do it in a practical way. But what I want you to see is the kind of love Jesus desires is revealed in the Greek word agape. Now, I know... Probably nobody in here speaks Greek. I don't even speak Greek, but I have studied it and I know a little bit about it. And the word agape is, the, is one of the Greek words for love. The Greeks actually had four words for love. And they had the word eros, which is a uh, passionate, kind of romantic love. They had the word uh, storge, which is a kind of love that a parent has for their child. We had the, They had the word... Uh, phileo, which is a brotherly love, a sisterly love, you know. You ladies hang out together and go shopping together, enjoy each other, going out to eat, or guys, you know, playing basketball together, or, uh, playing golf together, have going fishing, you know, they have a friendship. That's phileo kind of love. You enjoy being with those people and doing things. But then there's this word agape. And agape in the Greek language was the highest form of love. It's the kind of love that God had for his people. 
It's the kind of love that God expects his people to have for him and to have for other people. It's a love that has care and concern and compassion and it wants the best for others and it is willing to sacrifice self to make that happen. It's an important kind of love and it's not based on feelings. I've heard people say, you know, well, I would love, but I, I just don't have no feeling toward that person. God says that, that feelings is out of it. I'm commanding you to love. We love because he first loved us. And we are to love people with that kind of love. Now, the feelings may come later on, but God wants us to love. And it says in the Bible, love your neighbor. It says to love your spouse. It says to love your enemies. There's nobody that's out of the spectrum of who we are supposed to love. We are supposed to love all kinds of people. That's what God calls us to do. And it's supposed to be this unconditional love. Now, in our culture, we throw the word love around. Kind of like water a little bit. You know, we say, oh honey, I love you. And that's, that's a good thing. You know, that's an important kind of love. But then we turn right around and say, oh, we're having ice cream for dessert. I love ice cream. So we use the same word to describe how we feel about ice cream and how we feel about our spouse. Or maybe, I love potato chips. I caught myself. I've tried to stop doing that um, because I've preached on it so many times, and I've tried to not say I love, but I caught myself the other day, you know, about two years ago, I started on some medicine that messed up my taste buds. And so nothing for two years has tasted good to me. But when I came out of the hospital, I thought about something that I really took me back to my childhood that I wanted to eat that I really liked a lot when I was a little kid. And I thought, man, I started craving it. And so um, I think we got a picture of it here. Uh, Chef Boyardee beef ravioli. And I said the other day, man, I love me some Chef Boyardee ravioli. And I caught myself. You know, do I feel the same way about ravioli as I do about my wife? Not hardly. Okay, but that, that ravioli satisfies my taste buds. And so I try to keep a couple of cans of that in the pantry all the time. But you see the point. Love is something we have to be serious about. The Bible is challenging us to love God and to love people. Now, what I want you to see today also is that biblical love is characterized by two main elements. Uh, and this is part of what we have to understand. This word agape is used exclusively in the New Testament to talk about people and God, not to talk about stuff. The Greeks would never say I agape ravioli or potato chips or ice cream or whatever. It would only be in reference to a person or to God. And John brings up here in this passage we just read some characteristics that go along with that love. And the first one I want you to see is grace. Biblical grace, and here's the definition, God's favor shown without regard to worth. You know, God loves you no matter who you are, no matter if you're worthy of his love or not, and he, shows, he will show his grace to you no matter who you are. 
uh, the scripture says that Jesus came to earth full of grace. You know, we often hear the word grace and we think about that as, well, that's a blessing you say before you eat food, right? You say grace. Or it means forgiveness. And it does mean those things. They can, it can be used to that. But it's so much more. God's grace is so much more than that. In fact, the word in the Greek, charis, comes from uh, a meaning of joy and of gift, of giving. And so God's grace is, is a joyful thing. It's a, it's a giving thing. Matt Moser named his daughter Carice. If you ever wonder where that name come from, it's the Greek word for grace. Uh, and it's used to describe the gospel message. The good news of Jesus Christ is about grace. Um, and, and God stands ready to forgive the sins of anyone who will come to Jesus Christ. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. None of us deserve to be forgiven. We've all done things that are wrong in God's eyes. We've all, at times, rebelled against God. In verse 3 here, Paul, uh, uh, John mentions the grace, and he tags along with it, mercy and peace. You know, mercy, if, if grace is getting something you don't deserve, God's favor, Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. That is punishment for what you've done. So God extends to us grace and mercy and also peace because once we are forgiven, we can be at peace with God. It's the same word used in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to talk about the, the spiritual gifts that we were given, the, the, the spiritual grace we are given, uh, gifts to use within the church. So it's God's favor poured out on us in many forms, and it covers us in many ways. We could probably never count the times that God has extended grace to us, that he stopped us from getting in an accident or something going wrong, or, or we could probably never count the favor that he's poured out on us. And guess what? He calls us to treat other people with that same kind of grace that same part of love that people deserve. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your conversation always be full of grace. So we need to think about how can I be more graceful in my dealings with other people. But there's more. And the second part of this is biblical truth. Truth is the will of God confirmed by the word of God. And he talks in this passage we just read five times about that truth. You know, if we live in truth, we live within the confines of what God desires. And God's Word, said Jesus, is truth. The Bible, the whole Bible, is truth. And it reveals to us the will of God to help us live our lives in the confines of what God desires. And especially to be the moral people that he calls us to be. Tells us how to relate to him. Tells us how to relate to other people. You know, a definition of worship is expressing love to God. And so part of that it has to do with the truth. And truth must go along with grace. In, back in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verse 14, 
it says, The Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus came full of grace and truth. John 1, 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So if we were to follow Jesus, we were to be full of this grace and this truth. Jesus showed us and demonstrated this was played out in his life when the Pharisees were trying to trap him to get a reason to arrest him, to get him to break Jewish law and maybe even Roman law. But they brought a woman caught in adultery. She was probably a prostitute. And they threw her at Jesus' feet. Good teacher. You know, this woman's caught in adultery. What should we do? And the law of Moses said, if a man, you can't commit adultery by yourself, by the way. If a man and a woman are caught in adultery, they should both be stoned, put to death. Um, and so they brought just the woman. I'm sure Jesus was wondering where the man was that was caught with her. How did they know she committed adultery unless they talked to the man or they caught both of them in the act? And they wanted Jesus to pronounce judgment on her. Well, the text says that Jesus knelt down and he started to write in the sand. Now, what did he write in the sand? We don't know. Maybe he wrote, where's the man? Or maybe he wrote in the sand, <clears throat> maybe he started writing their names down. And maybe he started putting their sins next to their name. Or maybe he started putting the women that they had committed adultery with beside their name. We, we don't know. At any rate, it says that one by one, the men started to walk away. And Jesus said to the woman after they had all left, where are those that condemn you? If they can't condemn you, have no witnesses against you, then he said, I don't condemn you. That's grace. But also, I want you to hear what he said to her after that. He said, woman, go and sin no more. He's saying, you're a sinner. We all know you're a sinner. And you've got to repent. You've got to turn away from that lifestyle. So Jesus spoke grace and truth to this woman. And that's what he wants us to do. You know, in this world we live in, it's a, it's a crazy place. It really is. Uh, we've gone from supposing to be people of love to we're called haters now. How many times have you heard some unchurched, unsaved person say, why do Christians hate me? Well, usually because we speak the truth about their sin. Now, I don't think any of us, well, there's some Christians that do. We don't think we're sinless. We know we're sinned. We admit it freely and openly. And we know that we need grace. We need a Savior. We know the truth that we've sinned. We know that the grace is available. What the world doesn't understand, and often for good reason, is because we don't act very loving toward them. And we don't always show the grace. We just give the truth. But the truth is we have to bring both. And we have to bring this message of love that we have 
with both grace and truth. You know, if we knew, if I knew that there was a way that you could be saved and you were condemned, and I didn't tell you that, it wouldn't be very loving, would it? And we have that in the message of love from Jesus Christ that brings both grace and truth to any situation. You know, if there's only, if there's only grace, then nobody quits sinning. Oh, I'm forgiven. Sin all I want to. If there's only truth, then everybody's condemned. Everybody's a sinner and nobody's saved. So we have to bring the message of both truth and grace to a world that is lost. Now look at the last part of 2 John. At the end of verse 6, he says, His command is that we walk in love. And then verse 7. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be renewed fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. In those days, there were a lot of traveling preachers that went out and helped expand the Word of God, and the churches were to take these people in, feed them, take care of them while they were there preaching, and then send them on down the road to the next place. But some of these were teaching wrongly. Verse 12, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you uh, and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, which is probably another church, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. So here's the connection that I want to make to all of this. You see, faithful followers of Christ who strive to demonstrate biblical love, will be rewarded fully. If you look back at what he says in verse 8, uh, but that you may be rewarded fully. How are we rewarded fully? When we practice this love. When we take with that love the grace and the truth of the gospel message. That's what Christ is calling us to. You know, biblical love is demonstrated when we share both grace and truth. It's not loving when we compromise the truth. It's not loving when we overplay the grace and just, and just say it doesn't matter how you live. God sent Jesus down to earth to fulfill his biblical command to love and to show us the way to forgiveness through faith in him and through um, uh, repentance, and that, that we would be baptized into Christ, and that we would receive His Holy Spirit to help guide us and set us on a path that would lead us to the life that God calls us to. You know, it's an amazing story of Brenton Wynn. Brenton Wynn was a drug addict. He was an alcoholic. He'd been in and out of rehab programs over and over, and this one time, he was doing pretty good, and 
had stayed clean for a while, but then he fell off the wagon and did drugs and alcohol, and he got really angry, and he broke into the Central Baptist Church in Conway, Arkansas, and he just basically wreaked havoc inside that church one night, just tearing stuff up. He did $100,000 worth of damage to that church. Well, he got caught. He was arrested and put in jail, put on trial. It was a serious offense. He was looking at facing uh, 20 years in prison for what he had done. And the preacher found out that he was getting ready to be sentenced to 20 years, and he said, you know, what's the loving thing that our church can do? I don't want to just, you know, go and say, just forget about it, just wipe him off. But what can I do? I hate to see this young man, 23 years old, have his life ruined for the next 20 years of living in a prison. And so he went to the prosecutor and he said, listen, I've got an idea. Uh, Can we somehow get this guy into the Renewal Ranch recovery program that was located in their town? It just so happens the judge in the case was on the board of directors for the Renewal Ranch. And so they said, well, you go talk to the young man and see what he's like. And he went and talked to the young man, and he spoke truth to him. He said, son, what you did was awful. It was terrible. And you've got a history of being a drug addict, and, you know, you're going to end up in prison if you don't change your life, and I want to help you change your life. And the young man said, okay, what do I need to do? And he told him about Renewal Ranch. And the young man agreed to go to the ranch if the judge would commute his sentence. And so they went to court, and the judge gave the young man two options. One, you can go to Renewal Ranch and complete their program. Secondly, you can spend 20 years in prison. Of course, the young man chose the ranch. And he went to that ranch, and it just so happens that at that ranch, they brought their clients out to the Central Baptist Church every Wednesday night where they got a meal and they got a Bible study. And within just a few weeks, that, that young man, Brenton, he was baptized into Christ. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. His life was changed, never to go back on drugs and alcohol again. But it took somebody speaking the truth and showing the grace and loving him to bring him in to the kingdom. That's what God calls us to do, to show that kind of love to the world, even when they call us haters, and even when they say we're bigots and and all kinds of things. That's what we are called to do, to show biblical love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for men like the Apostle John who wrote to the churches, who called out people who weren't teaching properly to to show that we have to hold firm in this idea of love. And it comes along with the grace and the truth and that we have to stand firm in that we're going to be the followers of Jesus Christ. It's my prayer today that you would help us to be people who love, people that understand your call on our lives.
and that as we go out into this world, that you would help us to be people who would reach this lost and dying world with this message of love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.